You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part one of four panels forming part of Assemble Paper's Living Closer Together Symposium, a series of panel sessions exploring the intersection between the way we experience, design, and plan for a lively and equitable city. This is part four, Music Makes Cities. We've been, been talking today a lot about how uh, the function of cities and how we can make them more inclusive and, and accessible to everyone and what a good apartment building looks like and, and sort of the practicalities. But I think um, any conversation about living needs to include some uh, conversation about culture. And we've chosen uh, music because live, especially live contemporary music um, in Melbourne is just... It's such a part of the fabric of what we do. Um, just to give you an example, every Friday and Saturday night, more than 110,000 people attend live music gigs in Melbourne alone. So that's the equivalent of a grand final every weekend attending live music. And that's just live contemporary music. That, doesn't ex that excludes stadium shows, uh, classical concerts, um, other sort of things. So... This conversation could be happening around sport or around anything, but given Melbourne's connection to music and that we're such a vibrant, globally uh, known for our music, we thought that um, it would be a good way of illustrating the importance of culture when it comes to um, the livability of cities and about connecting um, to each other. So I'll do a quick intro, everyone on our, on our panel. We've got Andrea Baker. Uh, from Monash University, Dr. Andrea Baker, who is a journalist and also uh, researches music history and is just about to release a book on this precise topic, uh, what makes uh, a music city. Um, we've got Helen Marcoux from Bakehouse Rehearsal Studios and, I don't know, quite a few other things. Helen has uh, also been instrumental um, in a lot of political activities um, revolving around trying to save live music in Melbourne and uh, dealing with um, policy change and things like that. One of the, I think, the jewel in the crown of uh, Melbourne's live, or Melbourne's music scene or communities is uh, community radio. So we've got Beck Hornsby here from Triple R. She's the program manager of Triple R. Triple R has around 500,000 uh, weekly listeners, um, which is quite extraordinary for an independent uh, media organisation. And on the end, we have Becky, uh, perhaps better known to some of you as Sui Chen, uh, her performance name. Um, and Becky is an artist or musician and also a creative producer and does a whole lot of things in the music and broadly speaking creative uh, areas of Melbourne. So... We thought, um, I thought it would be a good place to start, given that um, Melbourne, uh, you know, this extraordinary connection that we have to live music. Um, we have the most number of live music venues per capita in the world. Um, what is it, and Andrea, we'll start with you, what is it that you think, or why do you think that Melbourne is so music obsessed? Well, as um, a historian, I probably I I think I think um, I'd like to go back to the history of why a city was developed. And, Please do. <laughs> and just briefly, I won't sort of bore you with um, 
a monologue. But basically, but the history of Melbourne, um, we already had a cultural history dating back from the 1800s and I think it really was linked to the gold rush. And um, the history is actually that international stars, we had the Madonnas of the day come here in the 1800s. And we've always had that rich cultural connection um, that the other cities that were more the convict-driven cities like Sydney or Brisbane didn't have. So um, that also was influential because we had the best, some of the best designers come here. And I think the designing of a city is just as seminal of, as a community. And the whole city community in the 1800s was just a, basically the whole grid. And from there, we've actually expanded out. So if I actually think about why Melbourne, I go back to the history of why Melbourne. But there are other cities that have had more open planning, which I can talk about if we've got time um, in this hour. But I go back to the history of the whole city itself and why a city was designed. If you go back to, to the times of, of, of Plato's or, um, or Athens, a city was designed to bring the best minds and the creative people together. And in the 1800s, we were marvellous Melbourne and we brought the best minds and creative people together. Of course, some of them have passed on, but their descendants are still here. And that's probably, I reckon, the genesis of why we are still a live cultural capital of Australia and possibly the world. Helen, what do you well, think about that? adding on from that, so we've evolved from the gold rush days where we had a pub on every corner. So the infrastructure was there to create live music. But um, looking at the evolution of Melbourne, we've had the days of pub rock, the early days of community radio. When we talk about the jewel in the crown, um, this is the epicentre of live music and music culture because we have some of the most sophisticated audiences, perhaps in the world. It's multi-genre, multi-age group and uh, responsive to all sorts of music and, and community radio have played a really a large part in that, but we can also talk about liquor licensing. So in the early days where pubs ruled and pub rock ruled, um, there was that culture of pub rock, but uh, we will give Jeff Kennett some credit, not that I like to, it's with strain, when the small bar licences were introduced uh, in the 80s. And that then we saw a proliferation of these tiny venues and as an incubator for artists coming up through the ranks. Um, I also think our weather has a little bit to play with it. You just don't go surfing. You'll indulge in a cultural activity, possibly go indoors. And so I, we discussed with often about the ecosystem of live music. And there are a lot of factors playing that have made Melbourne a, a, one of the most important music cities in the world. Beck, um, speaking on behalf of, we've now referred to you twice as the jewel in the crown, <laughs> um, community radio. Um, you've been involved with community radio and Triple R now for a long time, not just as program manager, but also as uh, presenting a show. Um, what do you think, uh, or what, what are some of the factors that you see as contributing to Melbourne's, um, you know, sure. claim as Well, I, I think great. building on from sort of what Helen is just talking about with all of the the scene in the pubs and all the live music there. I mean, when you're... I know even um, if you're sort of not necessarily in a city or you're, you know, growing up in the burbs and you're going out to see bands, then you want to sort of hear about those bands that you're going to see and you want to hear them on the radio. You want to be able to talk to them, talk about them as well. So I think community radio is a one of those it's a it's a hub i suppose where anyone that either listens to music 
wants to hear more about it, wants to meet more people if they're in bands and are playing it, um, it serves to sort of build on on all of that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, you know, really from that, from coming out of the pubs and then being able to hear it all is, is what sort of helped launch more careers, build them, provide a platform for them and, um, you know, if, I suppose from there if you can... If you can, if you're in a band and you know that there's a place where you're going to get yourself played and you're going to get it supported, um, then you might actually go ahead and record something, and then from there that builds on from, you know, people knowing that if something's going to be recorded, maybe they'll put it out for you, and it has an avenue, yep. and it just flows on from there. Yeah, and I think um, you know a good example um, of that at the moment, uh, say with the, particularly in America, the success of Courtney Barnett. Uh, Courtney Barnett was being played on community radio for, you know, three or four years before she was picked up by Triple J and, and bigger stations. So um, it sort of does, yeah, really provide that um, very, very, you know, rudimentary early stage uh, uh, support for artists that can give them encouragement and a platform to, to get out of there. Um, Becky, as an artist, what's your experience uh, or your comment on that? Um yeah, there's so much to say, so it's hard to think concisely about this. But um, I've, I grew up in Sydney and in at least the last 20 years since I've been... Or 20 to 25 years since I've been like participating in the, the culture of the city, both Sydney and Melbourne, there was a lot for me in seeing a good example and seeing role models set. So to build on what everyone else is saying, sustaining... Sustaining a scene is um, is really interesting. I think that in Sydney, I saw that there wasn't a respect for the nurturing of the music scene. One of my favourite venues, the Hopeton Hotel, closed in 2009, and I, I used to be able to like roll my guitar out to the venue, and that was a very unique scenario. But um, you know, I, I I saw that closed down and that it didn't really mean anything. And and since then, in the nine years, it, that that actual pub hasn't been turned into anything of any use to anybody um, and so I came down to Melbourne around 2010 2011 and immediately I saw that there was a respect um, by the community by the public but also with people in positions of power in city of Melbourne and uh, and it kind of changes your whole perception it, as a musician or an artist you think okay well if, if the city is saying that they're going to invest money in this and maybe I can consider this as a profession and not just a hobby so it's quite infectious and then it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy so other artists will say oh actually I'm able to work a part-time job and be a musician in this city they tell other people and then um, you know it brings hope to other artists who think oh maybe I should move to a city I'm talking about in context of moving because I moved but um, maybe I should be in a place that actually allows you know has respect for the the work that I'm doing it's it's not just a hobby and yeah so that's that's how I think it kind of can sustain itself it really needs to be supported and respected um it can't just be a one-sided thing it requires the whole community to kind of maintain and nurture it and I think that's um a, a good segue into uh back to you Helen <laughs> And you know what's coming. Um, but back in, in 2010, um, live music in Melbourne uh, really came under threat by some very uh, misguided or misdirected um, uh, liquor licensing restrictions. 
and uh, the Tote, Melbourne's iconic uh, music venue, rock venue, um, was under threat of closing because they could no longer comply with these, um, you know, restrictions that were being put on them and f receiving fines, etc. Um, now, Helen, who runs Bakehouse Rehearsal Studios, um, an extraordinary space in Richmond, um, along with uh, her partner Quincy, really drove um, the political, uh, I suppose, action that saved uh, the community and um, that scene that we kind of, a lot of us take for granted now. Um, Helen, do you want to just explain uh, a little bit about how you got involved and what happened back in 2010? And I must say it's really refreshing to hear Becky's take on it coming in a few <coughs> years later because that was certainly not the case. Although we had the undercurrent of community and support, um, we felt like we, Quincy described us as being slater bugs under rocks. And we finally came to see the light of day when we were our, our scene was under threat. So there was some um, unintended consequences of liquor licensing policy. And uh, in a bid to curb 3am uh, licences and alcohol-fuelled violence, there was a, a blanket policy putting out that um, basically equated live music with violence. So when a group of us, I'll, I'll try and condense this, worked day and night. So over a four-week period, we organised a rally where 20,000 people marched on Parliament. So this has been unprecedented in this country and there have been some other marches and rallies uh, that happened around the world quite at similar times as well and had similar impacts on their music community. Um, that was the political line in the sand. That's where we became visible and there was a vote in live music and contemporary popular music. So we went to the government with 10 demands that were all signed off in 2014. Uh, Quincy and I were novice activists. We had no idea what even a peak body was at the time. So we had a really fantastic group of advisors who, uh, funnily enough, non-partisan, uh, universal love of music. So people like Nick Tweedy, who is a senior counsel, liquor licensing. Andrea was an advisor in the early days, got involved with Shane Homan, Dr Kate Shaw, uh, people um, around that time. So we uh, hit the demands. We also had a solution. And we learnt very quickly that when you're going to pick a fight with government, you can't just ask them to fix it. We needed a sophisticated policy that would respond to, to the needs and what was happening to crush our scene. Um, so part of the changes that happened at that time, not only governments writing music strategies for cities, City of Melbourne, uh, state government then later went on to invest an unprecedented $25 million into the Music Works package. Uh, we saw the proxy broken between live music and violence and live music being uh, represented in the objects of the Liquor Licensing Act. All ages gigs were reintroduced after 20 years where they didn't happen in licensed venues. Um, and then the agent of change principle, which is really pertinent to our conversation around planning, density, uh, residential encroachment. It was, a, it was um, 
implemented in Victoria in October 2014. Um, it's been a long journey, but it's been a, an, an incredible change. So Melbourne is now looked on all over the world as a, as a beacon in, in sort of uh, what to do and what can go wrong as well. And then we'll talk of a tale of two cities <laughs> later between Sydney and Melbourne. I was actually going to sort of highlight the fact why about 2010 and how that implicated also around the world because in 2010 we were about 20 years post the intense gentrification process um, around the world and there was activism about how that was impacting on venues internationally and I saw that happened in um, in Austin they actually had they developed a peak body it's called the Austin Music People a bit similar to SLAM and also in Berlin because where the wall came down in 1989 20 years later, the impact of that beautiful chaos was actually becoming very normalised and there was a group called the Avanti Group. So all this activism around music helped to peak that whole notion of what we call now the music city, excuse the academic language, but the, but the music city paradigm. Because by 2010, we'd go, hey, on the chaos that we enjoyed in the 70s and the 80s, which made... New York, New York, and the Bowery and the West Village, West Village, and made St Kilda the 1970s punk scene, was really gone. And we were now becoming very much a monocultural city and it was scaring the activists. And that's why I think now Music City is such a popular um, tongue word to say now. Can I just say Berlin did have David Hasselhoff at their rally. So, you know, they had the Hoff, we didn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but they, but also, just actually, I just want to again. I don't want to dominate everything, but I want to talk about two things about music cities, which people seem to maybe it's more again a bit of an academic context. But there's isolation. If you look at a city that's got a great music scene, there's an isolation factor there. Okay, we've got Sydney and Brisbane, but we are isolated by from the global north. If you look at Austin, it's this beautiful democratic city in a largely Republican. Trump-style state. If you look at Berlin, West Berlin, it was surrounded by, you know, the Soviet Union and cities that were controlling it, or, or, the, or like I'll say, all the Western democracies that was. So I need some water that was controlling it. <laughs> so therefore, um, isolation is one. And just one more thing, it's about being a port city. If you look at cities that are port cities, they have developed a beautiful culture. Excuse me. <laughs> I know, these plane trees are really catching up with everybody. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not getting excited, just all of a sudden yeah. pollen came in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I just want to briefly, again, basically the isolation and port, and um, if you look at port cities, you look at Liverpool, where basically, the, even though the Beatles moved, and you also look at New Orleans, you look at Reykjavik, and lo and behold, in the 1800s, we were a port city and we brought in this beautiful ethnic culture. So there's all these issues here that it's just not just about, um, yeah, present day. It's about the impact of ports and cities and activism and post-gentrification and I think pollen in the air at the moment. <laughs> I think it may be a matter of who can sort of take over while the other one recovers. Sorry, just... <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, uh, Beck, so um, it's it's interesting um, sort of listening to that conversation um, that was, you know, around what happened in 2010 um, and, of course, as Andrea was saying, you know, it probably evolved quite differently in each, each place but driven by the same sort of factors. Um, 
what was, uh, back in 2010, what was the role of community radio? What was the vibe like at Triple R, PBS, uh, 3CR, <laughs> when, you know, these, the, the real, the, the, I guess, the, the pulse of these live music scenes was under threat? Well, I'll first start by saying that I actually wasn't at Triple R in 2010 and for a couple of years, while all this was going on, I was watching it from afar. Bizarrely, I was living in the Gold Coast of all places at the time but was desperately wanting to be here to be a part of it because I was always, while I was living up there, streaming, as I always would do, listen or listen to community radio and listening to PBS, Triple R, 3CR meant that I was able to find out what was going on. I knew when the rally was happening. I heard people coming in to do the interviews. Um, almost every broadcaster was... <coughs> ..was pretty much... <coughs> almost every program broadcaster was talking about it. I guess it gave it a place where people were able to find out more information um, and, yeah, people were able to come in and talk about that. People were able to express their passion, their views about that, interview different... Uh, people that were involved in the policy making as well. Um, and so it was, it, it helped to mobilise people, I guess. It helped to get the word out. Um, yeah, uh, and um, I think, were you at 3CR, uh, sorry, PBS at that time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Did you find the same thing? Uh, yes, definitely. And um, I guess as well, one of the great things about um, radio is that it's uh, relatively democratic, as in you just need a radio and, uh, you know, either some batteries to put in it um, or a PowerPoint to, to listen to it. Um, you don't even need an internet connection. Um, it's got the ability to reach uh, people all throughout mm. greater Melbourne. Um, and that was definitely one of the things that we... Uh, I used to... Oh, I'm still involved with PBS as a volunteer, um, but I used to have a bigger involvement there. Um, we... Uh, found that it was the connection between um, what was happening in the physical uh, live music scene, so the inner suburbs of Melbourne, yeah. with the people who would travel in from the suburbs. Yeah. So, um, you know, we would we would be getting people calling in from, uh, you know, Bayswater, Pakenham, um, and, and really the community, you know, mm. PBS, Triple R, that was the source of information um, mm. to... Was able to dis disseminate yes, it to exactly, everyone. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And sort of mobilise, you know, that, what, 20,000 people mm. who ended up marching, uh, you know, up Swanston Street. Yeah, can I quite extraordinary. Something? So yeah. a lot of people have the notion that it was all around the tote. The tote were the poster child for the campaign yes. <laughs> simply because yep. they were the first venue to actually close. And um, they were subject of a documentary that Natalie Vanden Dungan was making at the time. The first venue to have these conditions rolled out was actually the Railway Hotel in Carlton. So you can imagine, um, show of hands, who's ever had a counter tea at the railway in North Carlton? Very, oh, a few of you. You, imagine, you know, grapevines in the backyard, nonna cooking in the kitchen, old Italian men playing cards. The Brunswick Blue Shooters who'd had a 12-year residency. Harold Firth was the 75-year-old drummer from the fabulous Thunderbirds that had their gig shut down on the night. So it hit the Greek bouzouki barns. It was, it was a, a blunt instrument and can I say anecdotal evidence says there was around 126 venues that either reduced or shut down their live music program and replaced it with badge drinking nights or happy hours and things like that. 
So it had the absolute opposite effect that the government were, were hoping to achieve at the time. Musicians felt this and the community felt it as well. Yeah, and I think, um, as you're saying, Helen, the community feeling it is quite a pertinent one because it's with, with uh, the music community, it's not just um, musicians uh, in terms of, um, you know, economic um, benefit or um, enjoyment, but it's all of the ancillary um, organisations that go along with it and that can be um, not not just alcohol but say for example your bakehouse the rehearsal yeah. studio um, no live music is performed well really at bakehouse um, but of course people who are in bands who mm. perform live music go and rehearse at bakehouse and you know printing uh, presses who like places mm. that press vinyl records or at the time probably press CDs um, were affected by by those things. So it's quite a, quite a, um, it really is that, uh, I guess the, we use the word symbiotic, but it, it really does have um, a very far reaching sort of implications. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Publicists, your street press, the poster people, even the kebab stall, everyone, taxi drivers, mm. uh, shift workers, that so many people are affected by the demise of, of live music in this town. Mm. Um, now, one uh, interesting thing uh, that's, that's, I think, lovely that's happened recently. Um, so, Becky, you recently did a graveyard uh, overnight show... <laughs> on Triple uh, R. Um, but it's also, it sort of uh, goes to this idea of how um, how the sort of the ecosystem that we keep talking about of music and why the community is so strong. Um, you know, you've also had your album as a feature record um, on Triple R and, and also on, on PBS. Um, as a musician, knowing that you can also have this other type of relationship with, um, you know, the station... Um, what does that or how does that contribute to your um, involvement and I guess your confidence in um, your ability to, I guess, make some sort of living or, or whatever out of your music? I think, um, I, I feel like maybe that it's not for everybody. Some people really shy away from any, anything else outside of the business of them making their music. It's really personal for them and, and it's their art and, you know, to be able to play it that's that's enough for them or, or even to play it is a challenge enough. Um, but I, I guess I'm someone who I like to diversify my practice and kind of understand. I'm curious. So it makes sense that I, I feel drawn to being involved in the community in other areas because I don't always feel like jumping on a stage and and like um, I'm quite performative in, in the sense that there's always a concept attached to my music releases. So sometimes I'm just not in the, in the headspace to... Um, to to be that persona, so it's really nice to have another avenue and to nurture like um, the curation of music and share my music tastes. Um, maybe at first I didn't think that many people would be interested in that. Um, I dated way too many DJ people, and <laughs> they made me afraid. And then I was like, I dated someone that was um, really like, like you need to make a mix for my radio, uh, my. Um, mixed blog and made me feel really bad that I didn't do that. I was like, oh my God, I've never been made to feel like this before. So anyway, I made a mix and then I got really good feedback and I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can DJ too. And, and then I did learn to DJ. <laughs> I was like, this is easy. Why didn't they... Yeah, whatever. So, um, I mean, it's not easy. I'm just saying I, I 
had someone really spur me on to say, no, no, that you have something to contribute to this space too. Um, same thing with radio. Like I, I was always in my head probably be like, one day I'm going to do this, this and this. And and again, I didn't really, you know, it took, it took the urging of like other people in the community and um, I actually live across the road from Triple R, so there's really no excuse <laughs> to like try and get involved. So um, yeah, it was just kind of seeing that that was um, a possibility, but... It's also, like I said before, role models are really important. Um, if you don't see, some, like often if you don't see an example, it's hard to imagine yourself doing something that you don't feel naturally inclined to do maybe, um, even if you might be good at it or you might get something out of it. So, yeah, on, on another topic, just to what you were all talking about before, I was thinking, like just reflecting upon, I did come after the 2010 period and it's interesting I didn't really really understand it until I've met Helen um, and we've chatted over, you know, various occasions and I've learnt more about all the work that went into making Melbourne the city it is today. And it's interesting because I'd left, you know, I'd left Sydney at that time when venues were closing down. Liquor licensing was very different in Sydney at the time. And I knew that coming in, coming into Melbourne, I could see it on, you know, in all the, the street shop culture as well, that there were small businesses and people not just music, but people having their own business or their own bars. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This isn't really a part of, like, the the culture I'm used to. Um, I wonder why that is. And it was often to do with licensing or, or whatnot or rent being higher and, it, you know, all those things compounding into making it just difficult for smaller businesses, music or otherwise, to get started. Um, it seems that now Sydney has a role model in, uh, or someone that's ready to rise and lead in the Keep Sydney Open movement. So... Maybe at the time in 2010, there just wasn't the right people to kind of really assemble themselves to like um, revolt against against that. But now maybe it's Sydney's Sydney's definitely got a lot of other things happening now and a lot of other unique challenges too. Given that it's like Harbour City, like the po the poster, it's the capital, but that's not the capital. So it's um, yeah, as Andrea was saying, it's like all those different things that affect Sydney, Sydney's music scene, and it's. It's always going to be different from Melbourne and nor should it be compared to Melbourne because it's just so unique. But, um, yeah, it's really nice to hear from... I'm like, wow, I, I just swanned in and, like, released my music and got to play gigs and I'm, I'm like, it's so easy here. <laughs> but, but I know that it wasn't always. Yeah. yeah, and it is interesting, Helen, you've mentioned that a few times, um, you know, in conversations that we've had and I've heard you talk on it, how... Um, the government has really come along with you um, from those uh, those days sort of post-slam in, in 2010 um, and they have really worked with the industry and realised that, okay, this is a viable thing that people care about. Yeah, it took a while yeah. and took a bit of ankle-biting to make that happen but... Um, yeah, we went from being activists to having a seat at the table. Mm. And I think there is a live music roundtable in Victoria where industry get to talk to the various silos of government and that's quite unique uh, globally as well. So uh, originally we worked through regulatory reform, which was the, the major issues, and now looking at other, other things. But I'm, I'm really interested in Sydney. So, for example, they've recently had a parliament, two parliamentary inquiries, mm. one into the lockout laws and one into live music culture. And of uh, nearly 300 submissions, I, I went up there and gave evidence and spoke of the difficulty, and people talk about the rivalry between Melbourne and Sydney, 
Um, it exists maybe between governments or people around funding or if you work in tourism. But in reality, Melbourne is only as strong as its sister city. If we don't have a robust touring scene and a live music scene, there are nowhere for our musicians to go. So, in fact, we've seen a lot of musicians move to Melbourne recently. We often call ourselves a city of musicians. And as fantastic as that is for audiences, because you can get world-class acts any night of the week in almost any genre for almost next to no money, uh, there's little remuneration, remuneration, sorry. There's also competitiveness around the grants program. People move here for the postcode to enter into that system. So it creates more competition. And for, in terms of the touring scene, so it's putting impact on our live music ecosystem. Where do you go? Like so many acts just miss New South Wales altogether. And at that inquiry, you know, we described it as Sydney almost being in the unenviable position where they have to import their acts back to put on a, a local festival these days. So it's, they also have these absurdist liquor licensing laws that have been exposed recently. It's, it's kind of been death by a thousand cuts, controlled by big liquor, regulatory barriers, um, a non-supportive government... And it, the demise is just... And now the cross is, you know, it's a developer's dream. I was going to say, too, they really don't have that same sort of rich community radio no. network no. up there that we're so lucky to have here in Melbourne. And I think that makes a, a big difference as well. Um, I think the, 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 the approach is interesting. The, sorry to interrupt. but Because, um, no. yeah, they have, you know, FBI radio and to SER, but they've never... When I came down... I kind of thought of Triple R maybe in that similar way. I was like, oh, yeah, it's something I tune into, but then I'll, I don't know, tune into whatever else I was tuning to. Instead, I'll, like, go between the two, um, Radio National, whatever it is. But but it was interesting because Triple R does actually have this, like, it, it does really unite a lot of, and PBS as well, like, people really get behind community radio here. I don't know whether it's like this... Um, like, I also found that AFL crossover, people people can be a fan of sport and music in Melbourne, which, like, I, I know it sounds like, I don't, I don't know how that sounds to people, but for me, I was like, what? No, 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 I can't, I, I would just say in a school-type scenario, not that I was in school when I was doing this, but I would not be allowed to like sport and music. I had to be one or the other, and I definitely felt that in, in, in Sydney, the subcultures were quite separate, and I was really impressed by the crossover the way you could have an eclectic taste and it wasn't it was like fostered um and so i think maybe in the radio culture i know the fbi playlist music and they've always playlisted music yes. as far as i've known so that certainly changes that that's the game changer so like i remember getting my first music on fbi was a lot more of a challenge and it felt already more you know subjective to whoever's tastes you know there wasn't as broad a chance um I was always different, but it was always seemingly like a smaller, this smaller operation at the time. Um, yeah, Triple J was doing its thing. It was before Double J, so th there wasn't that united kind of thing. But yeah. maybe the consistency of Triple R over the years, and the other activities that it kind of supports, like the Community Cup and whatnot. I actually am the worst person to speak of that because I haven't really partaken in anything related to that. But I, I, I understand that it, it's a huge part and it means a lot to a lot of people. So. 
it just has a bigger impact. It seems to have a bigger impact in Melbourne. Yeah, and I think as well one of the key differences between, say, the two SCR and F FBI um, is that uh, community radio has been around for a lot longer, I think, in Melbourne than it has in Sydney. But also that playlisting thing is, I think, is crucial. So just for people who don't know, playlisting is where the station specifies uh, songs that have to be played. So it's they have... Announcers have songs that they can select from, but the announcers don't have full control over what they play. Um, so PBS and Triple R don't have that. Uh, neither does uh, 3CR or any of the other. 3MBS, the classical community station. Um, yeah, can you just comment a little bit further on that? Bec? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Freedom that, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, essentially, Triple R has always been that you can play and say whatever you want, as long as it's not bigoted. That's pretty much the only rule. And uh, it, I, I suppose it, it allows so much more access. Um, so you're not necessarily going to love every single show, but you'll find heaps of shows that you do love and you'll be able to hear any type of music at all. Um, I guess Triple R is slightly different to PBS, for example, in that PBS is a specialist music-only station, whereas Triple R also has talks programs. Um, but it, So it supports not just sort of music but the arts in general uh, and obviously also has um, other, other talk shows that might cover everything from sort of, you know, um, I don't know, the environment, science, politics, medicine, film, you, you name it. Um, but... Uh, just the fact that the announcers can can play and say talk about whatever they like means that it's um it it creates so much more access um, and so you know the really the audience of Triple R is as diverse as the voices that you hear on it so the more diverse the voices the more diverse the audience um, and yeah it, it's always been unplaylisted since its beginning in '76. But it sort of came out of um, it, when it was first given its license. It was part of RMIT. Uh, it was RMIT's student radio station, and became independent in '78. And yeah, from from there, I guess it's always had a mix of kind of academics alongside punks. And so it's meant that everyone when it, it's full of you know so many different types of people, but um, that that make up the broadcasters and I think that's why it's got such a large appeal to so many different people in the community. It's a secret weapon. I just want to actually say because like you know we, of course we're talking about Melbourne and Sydney but dear old Brisbane 4 triple Z started in 1974 yeah. and I was there I was well my brothers right. were part of it at the University of Queensland where they just put a record on and go that was Alice Cooper. Like, you know, that's how, how it went. And that was sort of tied to the punk scene, which came out, the Saints, etc. And, I mean, radio has been so seminal since 1925 when the Grand Opry was the background of, of Nashville. I mean, we've actually... It's, it's very clear there that radio is, is, is connected to music scene. But also street press. I think um, we have a very vibrant street press here. We had... Beat and we had Impress, but now there's Beat and there's the music.com. But um, that's a very good connection with radio and street press. And the people that do that really well also, street press, is the Austin Chronicle and their community radio stations um, situated at the university. Again, a music city is so tied to its media and it goes back since the, since the beginnings of radio. But, um, yeah, um, 
I think Four Triple Z would love to have a debate about all the radio stations and who who creates a scene because in summary, there's a great little music scene in my hometown of Brisbane too, but people dismiss it and it's actually becoming more of a scene too. I'm I'm astonished by what I hear more about Brisbane. Yeah, I mean, there's a, really. A lot. Yeah, a lot of great music comes out of Brisbane. And also, um, it was interesting what you were saying before about the isolation, um, yes. because Perth as well. Yes, The exactly. number of migrants that we have coming from Perth, yes. um, you know, with these already formed bands and musical taste and identity coming to Melbourne. And the same um, over the last probably four or five years in particular, I've noticed the same thing happening in Brisbane as I'm, well. I'm going to add Bakehouse. Is a, uh, we have this little barometer of what migrant wave we're having at the time. Oh, so uh, <laughs> it, uh, the number of storage spaces taken by interstate or... So we had... When she had first moved to Melbourne, we had this whole wave of New Zealand bands. And in the early days, there was, the, you know, the Kim Salmons and the Drones and the Black Eyed Susans, Triffids. So this this sort of crossing the Nullarbor as well. So um, I'll let you know where the next big scene is coming from, <laughs> our new immigrants counting the number of storage spaces at Bakehouse. Yeah. Can I oh. actually think um, there's a prediction that the new scenes will become from the regional areas because people, because I say musicians on their, on their lower wage can't afford to live in cities anymore. And um, actually it's actually moving and I think there's one implication we were talking about being the live music capital of the world. There's implications of that. There's gig saturation, the wage, the competition. It's it's got you actually see that in Austin now. People are leaving Austin and going to Nashville, um, and and Seattle because Austin is expensive. And I think Melbourne, as we've all known, is going to be eight million people by 2020, and and the real estate's becoming expensive, lifestyles becoming expensive, perhaps a bit more than Sydney, you know. So. And I think as well that's um, – it's an interesting point because, you know, you, it's possible that, you know, we will start seeing more music coming out of the – I guess the areas where people are now moving to out of Melbourne, um, especially like Castlemaine is affectionately called North North Fitzroy yes. um, because of the, the property price situation in Melbourne. I guess one of the other challenges is also keeping um, venues and spaces – uh, accessible financially for bands and musicians to, you know, make their music and to entertain people because that, um, you know, if, if, if prices rise too much, then, you know, there becomes nothing and there's nothing to do and people get bored and they don't want to live there anymore. So it's a bit of a challenging situation. If you really want to know how music works, I think sometimes we should all read David Byrne's book, How Music Works, and he's got a great chapter in Chapter 8 about how to create a scene. And it's all about what we've been talking about, low cost, that, that the musician lives close to the scene, that musicians can play their original music on time, they can come to the venue, have free beers in their off time. It's about creating that community of the scene and I think we can romanticise that there is a potential death at that scene unless we you know, take measures to have good community housing. Um, and even like, for example, they have tax breaks for musicians in Berlin. Um, these sort of things we are looking... There's other issues we actually... We've got a, quite a few things to work through. Mm. Um, can I just add housing affordability is such a, a major issue. I know it's, a, it's an issue uh, around the whole country. But uh, if I use our staff as a barometer, they all rent. No one owns housing. They're all artists. And recently they've been turning up to rent a property and there's been up to 100 or 200 people. 
Um, most of their leases are short-term, so that immediately cuts practice in half, particularly for women with childcare issues. And we often, governments often talk about uh, creating these workspaces or homogenised music hubs that they're, they're investing money into. But without being able to be close to your community, having some sort of security with housing that is longer than a six-month period, that immediately stops people being able to practice their art. Mm. Um, it's interesting. Uh, in the current issue of Assemble Papers, um, uh, I interviewed um, a, a guy from Finland. So Finland is working very hard to eradicate homelessness. They've eradicated rough sleeping entirely and reduced since, 20, uh, since 2008 when the program started. They have reduced overall homelessness by 35% and they're on track to reduce homelessness or to eliminate homelessness by 2020, which is quite extraordinary. Um, they actually have... So, uh, the, the way the system is structured there is very, very different to Australia. Um, but the organisation that provides uh, social housing that he works for, um, they actually have a... Uh, and sorry, some of you may have heard this story earlier today, but so they actually have a building, a... Um, low-cost social housing building purely for musicians. Um, and I think that is... Well, not only is it unique, but it also uh, is a really strong recognition of the importance of um, cultural practices and cultural um, creators in our society. Like, And to anyone who thinks they're not important, you know, try and go 30 days without listening to some music or going to a gig or reading a book or... Um, I don't know, listening to a podcast. Like it's, it's um, I think sometimes it can be a bit undervalued or the, the it not even not valued um, as a, contri a contributing, really important contributing factor to our community. People are looking at ways that they can um, include artists into housing programs. I know in New South Wales they talk about key workers and artists come under that category or people that work within the arts. A lot of musicians I know would not put themselves down for social housing because they believe they're... Often they feel privileged to play music. They feel that it's a choice. It's stigmatised or they feel they're taking uh, places away from other people. So I think we need to get smarter as a society. I mean, if we're living in a town with uh, a proposed 60,000 vacancies in our apartments and, and so many people not having access to housing. Um, we have to shake up this model somehow. And it's not just for artists, it's for the whole community. It's interesting, um, in, um, in Austin recently they had this development come up, this, this whole apartments around near the um, 6th Street and they decided that um, if, if, if creative people were going to buy into these apartments, they were um, their price was about 100000 lower than... Um, than a non-creative person. And there's sort of, there was elements of um, discrimination there, but basically they decided that musicians were so important to their scene, if they needed to buy a small property, they had it at a reduced price because they were so seminal to the cultural economy of that city. I was just going to say that sounds pretty nice. But, um... Sign <laughs> 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 up. Uh, that sounds cool. No. That move there, everybody's leaving, Austin. Everybody's leaving. I think it's interesting because my whole approach to my life has really been that I can't r rely on um, a comfortable income from my art-based practice and I've grown comfortable with that over the years which is like it 
hearing you, you talk about that, I'm like, well, that's, that challenges my whole approach um, because I've worked hard now to kind of create like, and change expectations. So maybe this is like on, on that topic in that um, allowing artists to enter a workforce in a more flexible way so that they can have... It's, it, like I work as a producer in a design and tech kind of consultancy and I've slowly over the last four years kind of pushed music into the work that I do, um, which is a really awesome. But um, I've also really maintained this idea that I only will work... 3.5 days a week. It's just gone up to that 0.5. <laughs> just <laughs> I don't know why I did that. Just maybe I needed to do more work. But anyway, three days a week and then two days is like my, my music practice. Um, I'm really strong believer that not everyone needs to work full time. I think it doesn't really work for a lot of people for various reasons. So, yeah, my little approach to that is just trying to um, encourage pe people to, to, you know, if, if you, you do have to do uh, the job, treat, treat them both with with respect and have pride in the work that you do and um, kind of demand that respect and be like, no, no, I'm serious about this job. I want to do my, my best work, but I need, I need those other days to do my practice. And that's informing my work and vice versa and whatnot. Um, yeah, so I think the affordability topic is, is also interesting to talk about from the, how we approach our working lives. Um, expecting that everyone is physically able to, to give five days, nine to five, and that framework, that's also something I think that could be a little bit more flexible and that would change the way that musicians and other creative people are able to achieve their their creative goals and whatnot, yeah. I was going to say on a slightly related note, I mean... Um, you know, community radio stations are always sort of running on the smell of an oily rag and are often forced to move when they don't want to. And I know um, PBS is actually about to move. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, Triple R are incredibly fortunate. When we had to move back in 2000... And it was January 2005 when the station moved, um, that the whole community... It was literally a community effort. The whole community got behind the station... ...and raised enough money so that it could buy its own premises. And I remember the day that we flipped the switch in the new studio... ...from Fitzroy over to East Brunswick. And I mean, at the time there was huge debate. Oh my God, you're moving from Fitzroy. You're crazy. You're moving out to East Brunswick. Which at the time everyone just couldn't believe. And there was yeah, so, ma so many sort of internal debates about whether or not that was too far out... ...and all that sort of stuff. And then and now it's like you know everyone's in East Brunswick, yes, yes. but um, uh, when yeah when when that sort of you know the switch was flicked, there was just so much excitement because it was like this community Melbourne has um, given this station the security it, that that it now has and it it owns the place and you know it 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 should hopefully be there forever. <laughs> Um, so that was something that I think, you know, has certainly been, yeah, worth celebrating as a community for achieving that. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, now, we – that's all we have time for on the panel. We do have some time for Q&A. &A. Um, if anyone has a, que a question that they'd like to ask for any of the panel members. Uh, they have more front than Maya here, don't they? Yeah, I know. <laughs> 
Hi. Um, I was just wondering, while I've got all of these experts in one place, if you, just bl blue sky thinking, if you could have any new facility for music advocacy in this city, what would you, what would you want? I, I actually, I was actually, that's a good question because I was thinking about, about the bedrocks of music cities also and I think, again, I'm harpening back to my case studies, but I think Melbourne... Um, could work on more having more non-profit organisations supporting the scene. When I actually spoke to the people lost and they said, well, we're, 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 we are the self-proclaimed live music capital of the world, so is Melbourne, but oh, self-identified. But basically, um, at the end of the day, they also turned around and said, but we've also could call ourselves the, the non-profit live music capital of the world because they have 38 non-profit organisations directly supporting musicians from their mental health to health insurance, house... Um, I'd say housing, affordability, all of that. So I think we should advocate to have more non-profit organisations spring up in our city and rival that good old city called Austin, Texas. Um, I might speak to that, actually, rather than my blue sky idea. I've just come back from Colorado um, meeting with a, a, a group of non-profits and it's, it's the Arts Endowment Fund has been reduced there and... The philanthropists pretty much fund the arts there. So a lot of the foundations were coming together to, to idea share on how they can support music and make music more part of their philanthropic arms, creating music hubs, etc. But there is a competition for non-profits here that I worry about. And there's that charity dollar that is always being competed for. And the role of government here is really important and that's something w that we don't see in other cities and other countries. Um, sometimes I often think government are the third A&R arm outside of radio. We've got um, record companies. For example, the, the amount of grant funding that gets given out and these peer review panels are there denoting the taste and style and music that's being released and music that's being toured. And um, one thing that's really heartening for me is that there are KPIs around gender and inclusion in this, this arm of funding. So we are seeing a change in the type of music and the stories that are out there. But in terms of non-profits, it's such a different structure here and I worry about... I, I would like to see sustainability. For, for the industry and for artists. And, and that's a really delicate balance with the, um, with the music scene. And it comes from careful planning. And it comes from day one, um, from education, from school, governments thinking about how the town is built, um, not letting residential run wild and, in, and uh, supporting cultural practice. So th that's my big blue sky thing, sustainability. I, yeah, I can't speak so much to the advocacy, but, like, just from the artist perspective, um, I think, like, what I've noticed in the last uh, maybe three years or so, um, three or four years, that there, like, there's a lot of scenes, like, small scenes emerging where just a change in attitude where people are just really, even if they're performing in a venue that has only capacity for 30 people, they're really taking it seriously and treating it like their work and presenting it, like being professional and changing the attitude of being like, oh, I'm only playing in this small venue, only this many people coming. Um, and just being positive about it, that they, there's still an opportunity to play. And um, I think that the more you treat your creative work like work, 
and come to it and respect it and and those opportunities that you have, the more other people kind of forced to take you seriously. Um, and then you also kind of support each other, like the question that you asked me initially about community radio. It's obviously, it's meant so much to my, my music career. It's probably the only reason why I have an audience, really. So, um, like, I have had access to an audience besides being drowned out in the internet and many other artists um, that put up their music on, on everything various platforms, etc. I think um, kind of working with the community as well, getting out there and respecting those opportunities that you have and making the most of them is, is like, it can be really game-changing for your career. And then taking part, like how I am now involved in this Triple R community. And I've met Helen before and um, just from, d you know, going to a few things and joining the conversation. And I think maybe that's it, just like being involved. It sounds so simple and you think maybe you are being involved, but... Um, going out and not being afraid to give your time and your time can mean so much just like an hour or two of your time even people coming here and listening to this it can make such a difference just by changing people's attitudes so that maybe next time they will donate to that music-based charity or whatnot you know it, it can really make all the difference I think yeah the, the other thing I think I'd like to see more of, um, which I think is changing a lot now and it's great, is just a, a bigger focus and accountability in terms of um, diverse gender representation. And I know, um, Andrew, you've been doing a lot of work on that too, haven't you? Just recently yeah. I just started doing some work. Um, I don't necessarily have the answers, but I certainly would like to see more of that as a focus, yeah. And, and I'm glad to see it's changing finally because I feel like, you know, when I was a young woman, it was just something that used to drive me insane and it's finally slightly subsiding. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can add to that too. I, I took part in the, the PUSH mentoring um, uh, project and that was really interesting because I, I was in this place of uh, being my 30s and mentoring someone that was a teenager and suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, do I swear in front of this person? I don't know. So I had all these weird, <laughs> like, I'm like, how old are they? Oh, and then I had to cast my mind back and well, when I was 18... I, and I, I was shocked. I had absolutely no framework to look to uh, someone and for them to be able to show me how to use a drum machine. Like, that would have been groundbreaking for me at the age of 18. I did have an older brother that pushed music upon me, but um, which I was really lucky. But I, I, I could never imagine the impact of having, like, people going back to the role models point, kind of um, just supporting the younger community and people coming out of high school and showing them that, hey, you can have a creative career and you can actually, you know, somehow afford rent in, in, in the city and you can do these things. You can have your cake and eat it too to some, to some degree if, if you're smart about it. Um, I think that would have really changed, changed my, um, my approach ha having seen that. And I think, I think there, are, there are things happening like that and just more, of, more kind of looking to the future and nurturing the people that are up and coming and showing them that... Showing, Showing them that there's a place for them in that scene is really important. Can and I, I add yeah. something about looking to the future? Uh, one thing that I want to add, a long-term plan for the arts from government, not based on election cycles, bipartisan, multipartisan, whatever we need, a long-term plan, both federal and on every state level and municipal. Hi, I'm just curious about the concept of the media being a really important 
important part of a music city. Um, I've been writing for Street Press for a couple of years and I've been running a small music publication just online. Um, and it's just very hard to make it sustainable doing it with no money, no support. I'm just wondering how we could get, how what ideas you might have for me and how I could get support to run a small publication that supports Melbourne musicians and tells their stories, interviews them, writes for them. Um, well, there, I mean, there yeah. is a glut of, you know, online um, zines also in relation to music and I think, unfortunately, the business model is is advertising. Mm -hmm. And I I think um, that's where Beat and Impress does, um, well, sorry, themusic.com does well and I think it's a crowded market in that situation. I think, for example, in Austin, they don't have any competition at all. They have one street press called the Austin Chronicle and all the ads go in there. So, unfortunately, in this day of... I teach journalism and, unfortunately, in this day of the demise of the journalism structure and the business model... Um, What's happening in the States, some of these communities are actually putting in money and employing a journalist to write a community paper. So people in the community are saying we need a, a music paper, for example, and they get all the people put to put money in so the community is actually paying for the journalist, not Murdoch or Fairfax, That'd which is great. now <laughs> on this slide also. It's, you know, it's a link with Channel 9. So it's, it's, that's a tricky, a tricky thing. I think we have a crowded market, but some cities don't have a crowded market. What is standing out, though, is talking about advertising. That is what's driving things. Branded content is a really big driver for artists in particular. So that's something we've all been... A lot of artists we know are challenged with. We've been had challenges at Bakehouse. We're approached directly by brands nowadays to create content for artists. So there, there has to be an ethical alignment there. Um, and who do you partner with? Um, and we've really seen a rise of that happening, particularly online. And um, some of the long-form articles I've seen have been directly sponsored by brands. Hi. I want to ask a question about where we see music in education. Um, from a neuroplasticity point of view, we know that music is really important to developing brain. And yet we seem to see it squeezed out of... Um, early education right through and w the emphasis on STEM is great and coding is great but if you don't have a broad creative mind and people like Dan Pink talk about the fourth um, period of work, the, the post the knowledge workers, the creatives will take over um, because everything else can be done by bots. So if that's the case, what does the music community need to push back into making sure that music is something that everybody makes? I don't. I've always thought you had to be good at these things. But I think children's minds are so plastic. What's the responsibility of the music community in the same way as you've got the live gigs? Is, is that part of your roundtable conversation? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a really large part, particularly with the federal submissions that have happened recently. So there are uh, uh, dedicated working groups from the education sector that are looking at uh, education and access to music. Um, inclusivity is a really big word there as well, from a young age. And unfortunately, on a federal level, there's been constant cuts to music programs before. Uh, we saw that happening in the TAFE system here as well. Uh, the community do feel a, a strong responsibility to this, particularly through music educators. But um, it, it is difficult to get traction above the noise with so many 
different issues on the table, whether it's uh, copyright or whether it's, uh, we, you know, we're responding to the attrition, shutting down of venues, and etc. Um, I, I believe there's there's a strong push within our community, but it, it takes everyone to support it as well. Can I just say the City of Melbourne in their in their planning for music, which I was on their committee, they had a strong um, education element there. Um, this is at a tertiary level, though, and they were bringing in different uh, music schools, and they did a promo about it. And the, and education is a very um, important criteria for UNESCO to for cities to become a city of music. And some of the cities have actually got that label because of their education programs from um, all ages in um, in schools. Okay, well, I think that's pretty much wraps it up for today. Thank you so much to everyone on this panel for your time today. Um, it's been very informative. You are listening to the final panel of Assemble Papers Living Close Together Symposium. For more, visit our archive at library.npavilion.org and find us wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>